Choose Linux, episode 23, for November 28th, 2019. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Joe. I'm Drew. And I'm Mel. And here we are for episode 23. And later on we'll be talking about contributing to open source. But first, distro hoppers. Void Linux. Now, this is one that we've had a lot of people getting in touch, kind of eagerly awaiting. And we mentioned last time that we'd had a bit of a negative experience installing it, but we seem to have worked through all those problems. How did you two get on? Well, Joe, I'm going to admit that this was, what's the saying, a peepcack problem. The problem was between the chair and keyboard. So I won't own up. <laughs> To be fair, they have amazing documentation. However, one misstep not documented made it so that I couldn't install the OS onto the hardware. I couldn't install it in a VM. And it all came down to the boot partition and the boot partition just needing to be left blank when you were identifying the file system. So you had to tell it what root was. And if you wanted swap, you had to tell it what swap was. But the boot partition didn't need to be labeled. And Drew, you're the one that saved me on this. How did you figure that out? Just years of experience and setting up various distributions and things like that. Uh, It wasn't anything that I necessarily struggled with. I just kind of got it while I was doing that first install. And I, I really think it's because I've been through these old school text mode installers before and have done like, you know, partitioning without using tools built into the installer and just a lifetime of doing this stuff. So I don't necessarily think that it's fair for you to say that the problem was entirely between the chair and the keyboard. It's something that really should be spelled out in the documentation. This is very strange because I didn't do anything with the boot partition because I was using legacy boot and therefore you don't need to have a boot partition. You can have one, obviously, but I just used the root partition and it was fine, except that in the installer, it uses CF disk. And if you create the partition with that and then you continue through the installer and you tell it where you want to install the root partition... And then it asks you, do you want to create a file system? And so you say yes, and then that just doesn't work. And so my only option was to create the partition. Well, I actually just booted into a live Ubuntu session or Ubuntu, created the partition that I wanted, then skipped the partitioning in the installer, told it that I wanted the root partition to live there, but don't create a file system, please. And then it worked perfectly. But I must say I wasted at least 10 or 15 minutes, maybe more on that. Yes, and I want to make it clear that the problem that L is talking about is creating an EFI partition in particular. It's something that's required for systems that are running on uh, GPT and UEFI that you don't need if you're using a standard BIOS partitioning scheme. And I also ran into that same issue. They're using a tool called CFDisk in the installer, and it just didn't work. Instead of booting into another system and checking it out that way, what I did was I actually just opened up another terminal in that little live environment and ran FDisk directly from that installer and did it through FDisk and everything went fine after that. So, yeah, it's something is broken in the installer with CFDisk. 
I think in that moment, the little like Linux admin, you know, badge just kind of glowed over your head, like you leveled up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I should have thought to do that really, but I, I prefer using Gparted. I don't know why. It's well, I do know why. It's it's visual. It's graphical. It's such a great representation of what partitions are on the disk, and it's very hard to make mistakes if it is nice and visual like that. Well, yeah, and I would have used Gparted as well, except they didn't have it on the live environment. All I really had were fdisk and cfdisk and one other, but yeah, there was there was no graphical tool available, so. Silly old me, I drop back to command line tools. Well, that's kind of a recurring theme here, no graphical tool available. Because with the installer, there's no graphical tool. You have to read the docs and, and run the command to start the text installer. But then once it's installed and you boot into it, there's no graphical package manager either. So you're again opening the terminal. I think my big takeaway for anybody who is going to try Void is just just pull up the docs. I mean, from the moment you download the ISO, have the docs on one side because you're going to need it for the password. You're going to need it to know how to start the installer. You're going to need it to figure out when you add your user what permissions that user needs to have because it doesn't just auto-pick the correct groups. Like, I had to go back and redo that section when I tried to install my printer because I hadn't added the correct permissions. Oh, no, I didn't run into any problems. I just accepted the defaults, but I didn't try and add a printer. Well, why would you? It's 2019. Who uses printers anymore? (laughs) Because some of us like coloring sheets, Drew. All right? Don't judge us. (laughs) (laughs) I actually print out a lot more stuff than I ought to, probably. So how did you guys get on with whatever desktop environment you picked? And what desktop environment did you pick? Well, I picked XFCE, first of all, and that was just a disaster. It was completely broken. I couldn't even open a terminal after I'd installed it. And I was trying different TTYs, and I just tried everything, and I just came to the conclusion that as much as I love XFCE, this version was just not working. And so then I went for Mate, which thankfully worked perfectly well. Yeah, luckily, or maybe not luckily, I was still beating my head trying to figure out how to get the install going. So Joe did the hard work there, and I just went ahead and switched and got the Mate version. I was actually really impressed at how small the OS was, and even when I ran updates, how small and not bloated and just simple the OS was. I mean, I think like it had, what, Firefox installed and a few basic system tools, and that's about it. Yeah, it is very stripped down, no doubt. Yeah, so I tried out Mate in a VM at first, and basically I was sequestered in a hotel room with not much else to do, so throw it on a VM on my main laptop, and I didn't really have any problems with Mate at all. Everything seemed to be running just fine. Uh, It's a little weird being on something that doesn't use SystemD now, but uh, I do see the appeal of wanting to use Runit, But then when I got home, I put the XFCE version on my testing ThinkPad so I could run it on bare metal. And just like you, Joe, it was a disaster. Uh, I could open a terminal, but Firefox was totally broken. And once I installed updates on the terminal and rebooted, the entire system was completely unusable. Policy kit was totally broken, couldn't connect to anything via Wi-Fi because of that. The dock was broken. I mean, it really seemed like the entire system was hosed. 
Hey, earlier you mentioned uh, using Runit, and I think that's actually one of the things I really liked about this because it just seemed obvious to me. Like normally, I'm sitting there going, "Okay, service system down. No, wait, no, they changed it, and it's system D now." Now, this was really simple. It was SV down service name, SV restart service name. Like it just flowed the way that I figured it should be on the command line. However, no system D means no snaps, so you can't go down that easy cheating route, as you've called it before, L, to install software. You have to do it via XBPS, the X binary package system, which is their package manager, which you have to run from the command line. So I cheated again, and I installed a GUI tool to help install <laughs> tools. I see. I tried to do that, but it was missing some dependencies. It gave me a bunch of weird errors, and I was just too lazy to Google how to fix it. And so I thought, right, well, I'm using the uh, command line then. Okay, I'm going to give the cheat for the people who are listening, and that is I read the docs. I told you guys, keep those up. And I installed OctoXBPS, and it's going to be missing the JKSU package, which allows you to have pseudo privileges to install them. But if you get those two installed, then you're, it's an easy go. I did read the docs, maybe not thoroughly enough, because I tried to install that, and yeah, it just didn't work. Maybe I should have installed the dependency. Oh, well. <laughs> so I didn't install Octo, but I cheated too, because Void does have Flatpak support. Aha. Uh-huh. So I was Flatpacking away. I was getting whatever I needed from there, with the exception of you know a few things that just aren't in FlatHub yet. Aha, uh-huh. I didn't really think to go down the Flatpak route. Because apart from a few applications here and there that gave me those weird dependency errors, pretty much everything that I wanted was there. Audacity was there, easy tag. Not the more obscure ones. I always go to get iPlayer, which is um, it's not really available in many distros. That wasn't there. But generally speaking, most stuff was. And they claim that XBPS is fast. And it is, as far as I can see. I'm going to give one more cheat when it comes to XBPS, and that's when you come into the system, it's brand new, you do your XBPS install, you know, dash SU to get everything updated. If XBPS is one of the packages to be updated, run that update again. Because the first time I did it, it was 13 megabytes. And I was thinking like, there's just no way. There's seven packages to be updated. That's it. And I noticed that XBPS was one of them. So I ran it again. And all of a sudden, I had a slew of packages. So I guess unless the installer is updated, it doesn't pull everything down, which I guess makes sense. But I've never run into that with, you know, apt or DNF. One other little trick, and this is also in the docs, is you can set a regional mirror. And it's a little tricky. You've got to do some command line foo to get it going. But your updates will run a lot faster if they're coming from a closer mirror. Now, can I just say my biggest complaint with this? No tab completion, which meant having to type out manually every time, every command, which was extremely frustrating. Yeah, I noticed the same thing. And that's got to be some setting in Bash that they just didn't tick. And yeah, I, I felt the same pain because I tab complete all the time. And one thing I wish I would have tried, and you know what, maybe when we're done, I will go back and try and see how easy it is to set up aliases. Because I think that's one thing I should have done to make that journey easier. I didn't think of that. But yeah, I mean, presumably you just edit your Bash RC as usual. So I assume nothing when it comes to this OS. (laughs) Yeah, good point. Mm. So I made some notes for this, and in bold I've written, this is a distro for Linux experts. 
this is not for someone who's new to Linux as far as I can see. You need to know what you're doing. You need to have a lot of experience. And I think that if you do have that experience, you could get a lot out of this. It is a very flexible sort of power user distro, but you are going to have to invest some time into it to get something out of it. You know, Joe, I think we're spending too much time together because I also made some notes and in bold and printed from Void OS. <laughs> I have the Void is the distro that makes me wish I just had an extra computer sitting somewhere because I could install it and I would be a better Linux user. I would be a better admin if I had time to learn everything from the ground up the way that this OS requires. And the only thing I really have to add there is... Uh... Thumbs down on XFCE, but thumbs up on Mate. <laughs> All right, so I always ask this. Do you think this is going to stick around on any of our machines? I wish. Maybe in a VM. I think I could get a lot out of this if I kept trying. Yeah, I, I also think that I might leave my VM kind of in place, the Mate one that I did first. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Might boot it up every now and again. I think I'm going to try a couple more things like we talked about with the aliases, but then I think... The next time we try something out, it's probably going to get wiped, unfortunately. I will tell you that this is now going to be my recommendation for people who are like, well, I'm getting bored with Linux or just kind of those people that feel that they've learned everything there is to learn. Come try this OS out and see how you fare. I'm just going to use it to shame Arch Linux users. <laughs> oh. Let's be honest. <laughs> Ooh, okay, right. It's moving swiftly on then. So what are we going to talk about next time on Distro Hoppers? So let's go to distrowatch.com and press the random distribution button. Spin the wheel, Joe, spin the wheel. <laughs> Tails, oh yes. Uh, the Amnesic Incognito Live System, Tails. It's Debian-based and uh, the goal is to provide complete internet anonymity for the user. Yeah, this is where it's all Tor and super privacy-based. I haven't tried this for a while. What about you two? So I haven't tried it, but it's talked a lot about in my circles. So I'm really excited to give it a go. You know, I haven't given it a run either, but I've read quite a bit about it. And it does seem like a very interesting distribution. So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited about this one. Well, I look forward to trying it out and talking about it in a couple of episodes. So on the last episode, we talked about what to do next after getting into Linux, finding your community, going out there. But another aspect of that is how do you contribute to open source? And there are quite a few ways to do that. One thing I tell people, and you know, just listen to this now, contribution is more than code. So please do not feel like you cannot contribute to an open source project if you don't know how to code. Nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Elle. For one, there's quality assurance, which we all should be doing all the time anyways, especially if you have a distribution that has automated bug reporting. Just making sure that that's on is a way to start contributing. And going beyond that, if you do find some issue, reporting it and reporting it properly is a great way to help a project and help your peers to be able to have good software. I don't think you should limit yourself to big projects or projects that are out there. I know that we had a member of our JB community on Telegram talk about something they're putting out. And I just said, hey, I'd be happy to give it a run and give them feedback. That's not a formal contribution. It's not a big project, but it's definitely something that can cause an impact. 
Well, and piggybacking on that a little bit, if a project has a GitHub or a GitLab or some other central versioning control system, most times they have some kind of issue tracker. And it's super simple to you know, sign up for whatever service they're on. And most of our listeners probably already have a GitHub account at least. And submit an issue. You know, the maintainer may flag it and drop it and say, oh, this isn't actually an issue. Or they may elevate it and start working on it and assign it. It's very easy to do and takes very little time. Mozilla has a great guide on how to write bug reports, and we can link to that in the show notes. But it breaks it down to, hey, how do you get a bug open? What information should you include? Even how to ensure that the information you're including is a clear summary, um, create ways to be able to reproduce the bug. Like It breaks down the entire process to you. So I think that'd be really helpful if you're new. And Alan Pope, who works for Canonical, made a short video. Well, he made a very long video and also a very short video. And the short video we can link to shows you how to report bugs automatically in Ubuntu with very little effort. And that definitely helps the project out there. And so, you know, if you kind of have to look at each project in the way they prefer to have their bug reports come into them and kind of do what they want because okay, it would be good if there was just one universal way for everything, but that's not kind of how it works in Linux. Everyone's got their own way. Yeah, absolutely. And going back to our discussion from last time, there's also things like Discord and various other communities where you can find the developers in their native habitats. And, uh, you know, like we said, it's best to submit a bug formally if you can, but if a project is just getting on its feet, that may be where you need to go. So what about contributing code then? I know your motto, L is contributions more than code, but without the code, there is no software, right? So someone has to write it. That's true. And it's something that I have been trying to do for a while. Um, it actually kicked off with our Endeavor OS hop because it had a little HTML guide on there that I gave a chance. And it's kind of just continued off and on. And I found a, I guess, kind of a challenge called the 100 Days of Code Challenge, where you dedicate yourself to code for one hour every single day for 100 days. So I think this is a great way to be able to contribute towards a project if they have something like low-hanging fruit that's easy for you to start with. You may commit to, you know what, for 100 days, you're going to be working on code to help improve that. Or maybe something a little more simple that isn't related quite to contribution yet, but can help you get on your way. So mine is working on the website that I kicked off during that hop. Um, It's just a simple way for you to feel like you are growing in your own career or you're growing in your own path while still being able to contribute to something else. And so that's HTML and CSS, presumably, that you've been learning. I started off with HTML and then I tweeted out. So part of 100 Days of Code is that you tweet out every day what your journey is going through, what you're doing. And another developer that was on there tweeted back and they're like, hey, I have some ideas for you. And they got me started in CSS. All right, cool. If you want to do something that's not web-based necessarily, Python is a good start, I've heard. I mean, I have kind of had a bit of a go at learning it and it's not really for me coding, I don't think. But I hear very good things about Python. Yeah, I've always meant to get more into coding. I can write some pretty decent shell scripts, but that's about as far as I can really go. 
uh, Python has looked interesting to me, but you know, I, I've considered shooting a message over to uh, our very own Wes Payne to see what he would recommend for a newbie these days, and maybe we'll report back on that. Well, fancy you mentioning that, Drew, because you can be on the lookout for an extras episode with Wes and myself talking about how to get started in development or how to get started learning how to code. We'll even tackle what the difference between the two is. Oh, well, that does sound great. I will keep an eye out for that. One thing that I want to mention or make sure that we talk about before we move on to other things is the importance to learn Git. Whether you're using GitHub or GitLab, I think that it's important for you to know the workflow because it's going to open up many, many doors when it comes to being able to contribute to open source projects. Well, and even if Git is kind of scary to you, there are other things that you can do to help projects out. Like I know Cheese contributes by doing design work for people. And that's a very valid way to give back as well. Yeah, I think you have to use the skills that you have. If you are very artistically inclined, you're a great graphic designer, then contribute that. If you are a great writer, then maybe contribute in the form of documentation. And if you speak more than one language, then translation is always a good way to go. So I have friends who are part of this great organization that people might be interested in called Write the Docs. And it's all about creating a framework for the way that documentation should be written and kind of creating rules and standards to it. So if you are someone who is great with, you know, the written word or someone who's looking into getting into translation of docs, definitely look up that organization because they even have their own conference where they get together and they kind of go over what best practices should be. So if you want to learn more about that, then go to writethedocs.org. And if you want something that you can contribute to right away with that, I'd encourage you to listen to extras.show slash 20, where we talk about Operation Safe Escape, because they're looking for people to come in and write documentation for things like InMap or write information for programs like Tails, where we break it down to where anyone can use it. So that's a way for you to be able to give back not only to your open source community, but to give back to uh, your community as a whole by helping helping prevent domestic violence. And beyond all of that, you can also just keep talking about Linux and talking about open source because the more people hear about it, the more eyes we get on these projects that we know and love and they'll keep growing and they'll keep getting better and they'll keep bringing in new developers and fresh blood to make the community bigger and more robust and more diverse and is all around just a good thing. Advocating for open source is, in my mind, one of the more important things that you can do. And of course, I'm saying that as a podcaster where it's literally my job to advocate for open source, but I do think it's very, very important. And one of the coolest experiences I ever had was sitting through someone's talk and they were talking about an open source project that they had gotten into, a very, very noob level. He was just very excited. And then somebody asks a question at the end of it and he's like, oh, I don't know. I haven't gotten a chance to try it. And some guy stands up and he goes, actually, I developed this project and answers the question. And they, I just saw the speaker and the developer talking afterwards. And I was like, wow, that is something that not only probably helped the developer seeing it through somebody's eyes, but now the speaker is going to be able to have like hands-on time with the developer of this project that he's so excited about. 
I think there's one way to contribute to projects that often gets overlooked, and that is donations. Just giving money to them, because almost always that is going to help, whether that money gets used to hire people to work on the project or for visiting conferences or whatever. Most projects accept donations, and it's a very easy way to contribute. Or even just the coffee fund for, you know, small single developer projects, that's huge. Just to be able to get a little something back from the community that you're gifting this to can really help to make it all worth it and to let somebody know that you are appreciated and your software is being used and we do see you. And another financial way you can contribute is buying Linux hardware whether that's from a big manufacturer like Dell or one of the smaller ones like System76 or Entraware, just voting with your wallet is is helping open source. If you buy that machine from Dell with Linux, then they know that there's interest there and therefore they're going to devote resources to it. Obviously not that one, but if enough of us do that, then it makes a difference. And if you look at System76, they've been successful enough to develop their own operating system, which you actually use, Al, don't you? Hey Joe, you're really right. I love Pop! OS, and it's definitely been my go-to OS anytime I get frustrated because I know it's just going to work. And going back to the last episode, you could always organize an event, couldn't you? How are you doing with that, Drew? Have you organized yours yet? <laughs> well, interesting that you should say that. Right after that episode aired, I had two people message me saying, hey, I'm not in Savannah, but I'm pretty close. And by pretty close, I mean, you know, it's a few hours for each one. But it looks like I may have two people who might be interested in doing some kind of meetup sometime in the near future. Oh, well, you'll have to keep us updated on that then. Absolutely, I will. Well, we'd better wrap it up then. Remember, you can go to choose-linux.show slash subscribe for all the ways to get future episodes and choose-linux.show slash contact if you want to get in touch with us. And you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at L underscore O underscore punk at LOPunk. I'm at Drew of Doom. And I'm at Joe Rissington. We'll be back in two weeks. <laughs>